Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of North Point Plus. We're glad you're here. We are super glad you're here. Uh, we're almost at 52. We've almost made it. Almost made it a full year. It's funny to think back to the time when we had the conversation to say, I think we should do this. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. We'll just try. Will it work? Month. We'll just we'll, try it for a month. That's right. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> that's right. And here we are, a month later. It's exploded. <laughs> We're viral. We're viral now. Yeah. Uh, this is our follow-up podcast. For those that are unfamiliar or that might be new, uh, we do our Sunday gatherings. We gather together Sunday mornings, uh, dive into worship, dive into God's Word, uh, dive into each other's lives, do life yeah. together. And North Point Plus is... It's just a small way of us continuing that fun time together, uh, keeping the conversation going, diving back into God's Word, uh, and diving into questions that you guys have. So you can submit questions in the mobile app, and we dive into a lot of those questions. So I'm one of your hosts, Mark Adkins. To my left, Rick Rubel. Not one of your hosts. <laughs> Some uh, part, a host one time. He's to my left. That's right. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> I'm the. Uh, and Rick, we are plowing through Colossians. We just barely made it through chapter three <laughs> this last week. <laughs> And you know what's funny is I know for some people it's like come on can we get out of here but I'm it's just yeah. at the the flip side of that is it's really really good to dive in yeah. and really kind of process from a from a bigger picture of what it meant for the Colossians to listen as that letter was read to them the first time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like for those that speak as we you know as we kind of prepare through the messages, you kind of get a little bit of anxiety of like, oh my gosh, like is the person speaking after me? Like, am I stealing their thunder? Am I yeah. talking about the thing that they're going to talk about? And I thought, you know, last week Andy preached on two verses that talked about transformation, and then you had these verses that talked about transformation. And I was like, oh, they're just going to be. It's just the same message. It's going to be boring. But like, it's amazing. Yeah, how radically transformative. Yeah, pun intended. Um, God's word can be. Well, and and we tend, when we talk about Scripture, we often tend to talk about a verse or two in a particular letter yep. that deals with a specific topic, and we don't typically think, oh, a letter like Colossians was, when it was taken to the church, they brought everybody together, moms, dads, kids, yep. and and began to read that letter from Paul that they knew and loved, right. and um, and listened as the whole letter was was read to them, yeah. and Paul wasn't writing sound bites. He was <laughs> right. writing continuous thoughts. So it makes right. sense to talk about transformation of the Word of Christ dwelling you richly, so that you can change, yeah. um, and then to say, okay, this is what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, super cool. So you uh, preached this last week. Like I said, we finished up chapter three. We just got barely into chapter four. Um, so what are kind of like the the spark notes from this last week? Um, I'll get there in a second, but I didn't say this in the message, and I want to say it. It's uh, This is a great example to let people know that the book chapters and verses are not sacred. Yes. Um, they were done by, uh, by uh, you know, somebody who was trying to make sense of everything, yep. and they did it for whatever reasons that, that they did it. And this is one of those examples where it's like, what were you thinking? It because it's <laughs> so clearly, right. um, verse 1 of chapter 4 goes with chapter <laughs> 3, not with the rest of chapter 4, but uh, yeah, and so, it's, for those that are unfamiliar, before we had chapter verse markers in the Bible, you just had a bunch of text. Yeah. So if Rick gets up and preaches and he says, "Hey, I'm going to be in Colossians. I need you to go to uh, it's like the 15th paragraph, yeah, uh, the 14th line, second right. column. Like that's how you used to identify where it was. So now we have chapters and verses. So it's a lot easier to say Colossians three. We're going to be in Colossians three eighteen. You can find that really quick. 
But you have examples where they add in chapter and verse markers where they make no sense yeah. to divide up. So, so, so my takeaway is when I write Deb a really long email, I'll put chapter one perfect and, and <laughs> write out each sentence as a ver- not That's not a really spiritual way to write. That's absolutely. <laughs> so here's the big picture in terms of of where we were Sunday. It it really is this whole idea that. Um, that the Word of Christ in us transforms us, and that gets played out into all kinds of relationships, into instruction for wives, for husbands, for parents, for children, for slaves and masters, and in our context, that really is employees and employers. Yeah. How was yeah. that for a, that's a, a great, quick... It's a great elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so if you didn't have a chance to watch the message, if you were out of town or you weren't able to watch online, go back and watch that. It's, it's really, really good. You, you might think like, oh, I don't really fit into one of those categories anymore. Like, you know, my kids are out of the house or I'm single or whatever it might be. But man, like there's really, really good stuff yeah. in that passage, regardless of your life stage, which we're going to dive into. Yeah. But first, <laughs> we have a question as a carryover from last week. So we talked last week, if you watch North Point Plus, that sometimes we just get questions that just kind of pop up out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's always fun because I'm always curious, like if someone was listening to the message and they just had this rant, like the Holy Spirit just like took them on a rabbit trail and was like, I want you to think about this. And so we'll just get random questions. So one of the random questions last week was about miracles. Yeah. Why don't we see miracles today? Like we see recorded in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Andy and I had a discussion on that. So we had a question come in uh, that said they loved the bonus conversation about miracles last week with Andy. Uh, The answer seemed a little different than what Rick has taught in the past. (laughs) Can Rick weigh in on this same question? (laughs) Yeah, I actually actually listened to the podcast. I I try and do that when I'm not the person on the podcast. Um, And um, and it it was a great, great conversation. Um, The... the, um, I have kind of a different perspective in yeah. that I feel really strongly about um, using the word miracle only to describe things that are supernatural events. Yeah. So if anything can be explained naturally or is the providence of God, there, there's a difference between providence and miracle. Sure, Providence is God working through natural means to accomplish his wills, to accomplish his will. So I, like I would say um, the birth of grace yeah. with complications, complications and all the stuff that was there, that that was the providence of God yeah. that brought you guys to the to have the ability to do an ultrasound to have the right doctors in place to have everything so that she could be born healthy whole all that kind of stuff same thing with my granddaughter Sylvie yeah. five years ago um, with an omphalocele she's got organs outside of her body in the womb it wasn't a miracle that she survived and it wasn't a miracle that um, that she healed so quickly afterwards, it was really the providence of God, God working through natural means to help that, that happen. I would distinguish that from miracles in that a miracle is something that can't be explained naturally. Um, So when the nation of Israel crossed through the Red Sea and the waters parted and they walked through on dry land, there is no, uh, you can say all you want, Oh, there was you know something dammed up the water upstream, right. and and there was what you don't walk through muck, right. and and have that be described as dry land. You you just can't. That it was a miracle. Um, when a person is healed of leprosy instantaneously, that's a supernatural. There's no no natural explanation for that. Why does that matter? Yeah. Why does it matter to me? <laughs> I mean, maybe it doesn't matter to anybody else. Um, but why does it matter to me? Because I think when we talk about God's providence, but give it the word miracle, we, we lessen the value of the supernatural ability of God to work. 
Yeah. Um, and, and so I would actually say, in response to the question from last week, why doesn't God still do that? I, I think that he still does. Yeah. I think when you look at Scripture, that miracles were done typically to prove the, um, the role of the person who was speaking or who was there, to, to, for God to say, listen to this person, they have credibility. And so, so miracles, um, uh, when, um, when Jesus healed, it gave him credi- credibility to be able to feed 5,000 people with five, five loaves and two fish, yeah. um, to, to heal people instantly, to cast out demons, to do all those things supernaturally. It said, there's something different here that's going on. Um, for whatever it's worth, Satan also has the ability to work supernaturally. He can yeah. he can he can do things supernaturally, and um, and does and so does God still today. Um, but we have the authority of Scripture, so there's not the credibility piece that necessarily uh, is there to validate the the voice of the uh, speaker. Yeah. But um, uh, separate podcast to talk about experiences <laughs> where we've seen yeah. things that are supernatural that are. Yeah. Um, that are that um, are not providence, but really are miracles. So they're supernatural kind of things that say, yeah. "There's no way that this could have happened except by the hand of God." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Good question. Um, yeah, thanks. Good, good to have Claria. And like you said, maybe that'll be another podcast that we'll sometimes we'll, yeah we'll add that in yeah. somewhere. We'll we'll talk about that. Yeah, we could do on the North Point conversations. <laughs> conversations <laughs> at North Point. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of that, we we put out um, a recent video, uh, kind of as a, a way to circle back to our conversation on uh, abortion and reproductive rights and freedoms yeah. and biblical perspectives on that. So that went out last week. So if you haven't had a chance to watch that, it's. Just under an hour and a half. Oh, is so that, was it that long? It's an hour 20. Uh, it was a long conversation. So feel free to break that up over multiple commutes yeah. to and from work. Um, but man, they're such a good conversation. Uh, we, Rick and I kind of came back together after having different conversations with different people yeah. and kind of brought in a bunch of different input and tackled a bunch of different questions that I think are really relevant to the church, really relevant to our church. Um, and man, it's just hopefully encouraging to you as well to kind of dive into those conversations. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that. Go check that out too after you watch this podcast, of course. Uh, all right. Of course. Uh, so now into questions for this past Sunday. Yeah. So you talked about, like you said, life transformation in terms of all these different relationships, uh, husbands, wives, parents, children, employers, employees, all that, and everything in between. Um, so we got some questions dealing with that. Yeah. So the uh, the first one, when will the... Uh, this is from the Circus Ringmaster. Oh, I don't know who that is. Thank you. Thank you, Circus Ringmaster, for writing in. I assumed it was some sort of inside joke. I don't know. It's too inside for either of us (laughs) to figure out. Uh, Question from the Circus Ringmaster. When will the Ruble Parenting book be published? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, That's a great question. Maybe that's a retirement project or sabbatical project sometime. There we go. We'll figure that out. But I I wanted to have that question go first because you mentioned in your message that you have all these notes about parenting and relationship with children yeah. that you didn't have time to really get to unless we wanted to do a two-hour message, which right. some people might vote for. Second service, that might work easier than first service, <laughs> exactly. but the children's workers probably would not be fans. <laughs> yes. So let's uh, let's use this question about the, the Ruble Parenting book. Yeah. What, are, what are some of the notes on the Ruble Parenting book that didn't make it in? That, well, um, one, of the, one of the things that I really kind of wanted to flesh out, I, I just kind of mentioned that... Um, that there are different phases that happen in parenting. 
yeah. and um, and I may have hit on these in, in other messages in the past. But when when your child is little, when um, like with with Grace, at this point in time, you and Julie are Grace's moral conscience. Right. You 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 help her understand what's right and what's wrong. Right now, we're teaching her don't touch outlets. That's that. Um, <laughs> it's a real problem. That's yeah, and and she needs to know that. Yeah, and um and along with that, some sense of healthy understanding of what obedience looks like. Right, uh, a call to obedience. Um, so as a child, especially when they're young, the parents are their moral conscience. So, um, you have to put money in the bank, in their moral conscience bank, to help them understand so that as they get older and you're not there to tell them, no, don't do that, yeah. um, that they have that they have a moral warehouse, if you will, that they can walk up and down the rows and think, okay, what do I do in this situation when I'm out with my yeah. cousin and my cousin wants to do X, Y, Z? You have to feed enough into them as they're growing up to help them be able to make wise choices as they get older, yeah. not even just into their preteen years, but into their teen years and then into their adult years. And, um, and, and that demands a different kind of parenting. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think over the years that I've seen is that um, this conversation was all in the context of what embitters a child, mm-hmm. is um, a, a, a child, a, a teenager, that the parents are still parenting them like they're 10 or 11. That that is incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And um, when I was teaching at the college, uh, you saw that lived out in kids that came to college that had not had a progressive sense of responsibility. Yep. Um, in that they they came to college and all of a sudden they're on their own. And even though there are rules at a Christian college, they're like, I can do whatever. Maybe I, <laughs> I yeah. There's freedom. I can I can do whatever I want whenever I want. Yeah. Um, and. At its best, maybe they flunked out. If you know, if right. they have, if right. those are the worst consequences that they, that that all of a sudden they realize, oh, if I don't study for tests, if I don't no do my homework, make me go to class. Yeah, um, uh, then I can't come back to school again. That that's a that's a healthy lesson, but it's a whole lot better when a kid is twelve or thirteen and in eighth grade and they have an assignment due, and it's. 10 o'clock at night on the night before it's due and it's supposed to be a two-week project, that mom and dad don't do the project and don't let them stay home. They have to go to school. They get the F for the project and they learn at 12 or 13, oh, if I don't do what I need to in planning ahead and doing the work, there's a consequence for that, that sense of progressive responsibility. It's so, so important. And it it, um, adds to the self-esteem of the child as they grow up. When they understand that, um, that they can help their family by putting dishes in the dishwasher, by yeah. taking out the trash, by yeah. mowing the lawn, by doing whatever. Um, in our culture, uh, society or media or whatever has made parents feel bad for teaching their kids to do stuff, <laughs> right. which is crazy because because they need that to develop. And without that development, they really do get... Um, insecure yeah they, they can get bitter with mom and dad yeah um they can they can i'm i saw this as a professor in college um that they can get angry when they are finally held accountable sure because they've never been because mom and dad have always spared them of the consequences right um the story i i 
probably have told a number of times, I, um, the first year I taught, um, I, I had a parent come in after I had taught this class and the, and the kid hadn't done the work and they failed the class. And the parent came to the college to talk to me, to ask me to change the grade for the student because, because it was going to impact their financial aid and uh, um, their ability to come back to school and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, I, I, I was dumbfounded. This, yeah. is, this is an 18-year-old adult that could be serving the country, right. <laughs> um, right. could be fighting a war, yeah. and you want me to change their grade because they didn't do the work. Yikes. Um, but, <laughs> but they were someone who had never had... Um, they, they had never experienced accountability for the choices that they made. So that's a really important piece that, that um, is there. And as parents, um, we've got to just be vigilant in thinking about and thinking ahead. Okay, my, my child's three years old. What is it that they need to be learning at this point in time? And what do I need to be aware of? Yeah. Along with that, I, it was the last thing I said in the, in the list of things that embitter a child. Um, if we, if we don't um, live out what we say we value mm. and that we call our kids to, it creates this incredible disconnect that, that both lowers the respect that our kids have for us and causes churn in them. It causes them to be embittered. Yeah. Um, so if you say you always have to tell the truth and, and then you want your kids to lie for you for whatever reason, mm. um, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's, I, I think, I actually think parenting is the, um, it's probably the hardest job to, to be consistent in your parenting yeah. because you've got to be consistent when you're exhausted. Um, and, right. and that's so hard. You, you had a quote that you told me last week, didn't you, about that somebody said to you about parenting. Was that you? Uh, Maybe maybe I'm too exhausted that, to remember. Uh, that maybe oh, that's right. That, wasn't it you who told me that that somebody had told them having having kids is God's greatest tool to shape your holiness? Uh, uh, that wasn't you. No, that's a great so, quote, though. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was um, a conversation I had last week with somebody. If yeah. if you're who it was, write it in the notes. Yeah, to you. Um, it, 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 but it's really true yeah. because when you look at your kids, you see the greatest qualities. Of yep. mom and dad lived down in them, and you you see that magnified. Yep, and you see your weaknesses magnified horrifyingly um, yeah. in your kids, and it really it really does call us to holiness. And and yeah. uh, we're not ever going to be perfect, but we we need to do everything that we can to yep. be consistent. Well, and I think that's that's one of the points you brought up in your message yesterday is be consistent. And another point of not embittering your children is acknowledging and apologizing. Right. Because obviously you're not going to live the perfectly consistent life where you perfectly model every moral and every guidance that God gives and you live that out perfectly as a parent. We know that. Yeah. Even though we aspire to that. But the lesson that you can teach your children is, hey, when I mess up, I'm going to be vulnerable and share that with you because yeah. I don't want you to mess up. Like, I'm acknowledging that this is a mistake. I right. brought you into a situation that you weren't supposed to be in. I asked you to do something. I did something that I'm not supposed to do. 
And man, that builds a ton of trust with kids. Yeah. I can I can think back to specific conversations I've had with my parents where they had that moment with me where they apologized for making a mistake. And gosh, like the level of respect that I have for parents that can do that just skyrockets as a kid. Yeah, and and l- if we can, let's dive into the question that we got that was about, okay, what do you do when when what kind of tools do you have when your kids have yeah. information? Yeah, um, yeah. Someone someone submitted a question of how should a child communicate to their parents what frustrates them if it's within the bounds of the frustrations you mentioned in the message. So how, how talk about this communication back and forth between parents and kids about all of this stuff that goes on. Yeah, here's here's the hard thing. Parents, you have to you have to create some kind of signal that a child can give you that that's like oh i need to pay attention to this yeah um that helps you take a step back from the moment because if you're saying son i told you the very first thing that you need to do when you come in is to bring the trash cans in um and 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 they're saying but dad but dad i told you but dad i i told you not knowing that their mom said no, when you get home, the first thing that you've got to do is put your bike in the garage or your bike's going to get hit by a car that comes in the driveway. So the kids go on, you know, an eight-year-old kid is saying, do I take the trash in or do I do right. the bike? And even though that sounds silly to us, sometimes as parents we say, no, why'd you put your bike in the garage first? Because I told you to do the trash. So you've got to have some kind of signal where they can raise the flag. And and it doesn't have to be this, but this is the tool that we used with our kids, and it sounds, it it just sounds goofy, but it worked for us. Yeah, they would say, "May I appeal?" <laughs> it, it, it sounds like I love that. <laughs> it, it's it sounds like Your Honor, may yeah. I appeal? Objection <laughs> um, sustained. But the reason that we chose that was because it reinforced that mom and dad were still in charge. Yep. It, it wasn't an argument back and forth. And there were some times that we said, no, you can't. Sure. Uh, no, you can't. But, but may I appeal for us worked better than dad. I have more information. Uh, yeah. can, can, can I give more information? Yeah. Um, that, that could work too, but something like that, some language that you can teach them to say, Hey, if ever you feel like we're not being fair, like we, like we don't yeah. know, everything. And, and that, that works up even into their teen years, because there are some times as parents sure. with teenagers that, that were, um, that were sticklers. We say, you know, we say curfew is 10 o'clock. You've got to be home by 10 o'clock. And they come in at 10, 10 and we just go off and, and, um, and, and just start being angry and saying we can't trust them and all that kind of thing. And don't ever give them a chance to say, the reason the reason that we're late is because um, there was a person who was bleeding and we had to take him to the hospital. Right. That's a pretty good reason to be late. <laughs> yes. um, Only to be ten minutes late is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and with phones, maybe on some of that kind of stuff with teenagers, that it's different than when my kids were were teenagers. Um, yeah. And and that that access, but that same principle applies. That they, they need to be able to say. But dad, that person was crying and they needed, I needed to just be with them to uh, to help them work through stuff. And then to be able to talk through, yeah, that's really, really good that you did that. 
But you also have to remember that there was a reason why we said you needed needed to do X, Y, Z. But may I appeal for us? It was it was them throwing the flag, raising yeah. the, raising the yellow card to say, hold on, hold on just a second, <laughs> right? <laughs> before before you go crazy, mom and dad, can we can we talk yeah. about this? And the the great thing about that too was they could say that even when they were three or four years old, right? Um, but yeah. may, may I, may I appeal? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, and my, my follow-up to that when they were little always was, do you have more information? Because that, right. that was the key. You had to have, more, you can't just appeal right. what the decision is just for the sake of appealing. You had to have information yeah. that we didn't have at that point in time. I love that. That's great. I think the, there's so many good practical reasons for that because a, it, it sets up this standard, uh, it, as I'm thinking through the quirkiness of my mind, like I like may I appeal because it's so weird. It is weird. That it's not it's not a thing you would normally say as a right. reaction. Like, but dad, but dad, like you don't understand. Like those are the things that yeah. would typically come out as opposed to like, sir, <laughs> may, may I, I appeal? It's <laughs> such a weird thing to say that as like I know myself and how I'm wired as a person yeah. that when I get on a one track focus, I'm there that's where I'm at. Yeah. So having something weird like that said to me would like would shake me out of and be like, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> oh yes, you may appeal. <laughs> yeah. So practically, that just it might sound weird, but like there's a, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good if it sounds. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Um. Let me think. The the um. The, the s- stages are, are so important. Consistency is so important. Yeah. Um. Recognizing. I th- I think at the point in life where I am now, having seen lots of kids grow up, um, there are there's a difference between a child who grows up happy and whole, mm. safe and secure, um, loved, but with growing sense of responsibility, and and someone who grows up with a harshness from their parents. Um, with a with a um, instability in their parents, yeah. Um, like um, the um, I think I can do this. I didn't ask Deb, but um, <laughs> De- Deb would say one of the things that has been hardest for her in coming to adulthood, which is fun coming into adulthood. We're in our sixties now, um, but she said she never knew when she came home. She could do the exact same behavior when she came home. Mm. And and at one point in time, her mom would just ignore it and not and not respond. Other points in time, her mom would would interact with her, engage with her in a really really positive way. And sometimes her mom would 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 just go off the deep end. Mm. And um and she said, I just never knew. I you know I never knew what the response was going to be to anything that I did or asked. And that creates an insecurity that that runs deep. Yeah. You know, it's that's hard. Yeah. hard for a kid. Yeah, I mean that makes me. So the book I recommended to you earlier talks about uh, something almost exactly like that, where it talks about our perception of the perception of our self, our individual, is so shaped by outside influence yeah. that it's almost entirely definitive by outside influence. So if you spend your whole life in a household that devalues you as a person. Or that is so yeah. erratic and all over the place that 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 starts to become the perception of who you are. Well, if my parents think I'm annoying, or they think I'm not worthy, or they don't like I don't see my parents loving me, then maybe right. I am someone that's undeserving of love. 
Um, and that's where that points and, you back to the question that you asked in your message yesterday of if God parented you the way you parent your child, <laughs> like, man, that is such a convicting thought. When, when, when I wrote that down <laughs> in my sermon prep, when that thought came from my head onto the, I, and I typed it in, it w- I just stopped because it was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. The, the truth of that, well, for so many of us, our perception of God is shaped by the way that we parent our kids. Yeah. And, um, and that truth um, paired with, a, with something that I've, I've talked about before uh, um, is, is just incredibly powerful. This is what I've talked about before. Um, there was a real aha moment for me when the kids were little where, where I was just really kind of overwhelmed with the reality that my kids' view of God was going to be shaped by my relationship with them. Yeah. So if I was loving and nurturing, they were going to have one picture of God. If I was distant and hostile, they were going to have a different picture of God. If I was if I was scattered, they were going to have a different picture of God. Yep. If if um if they grew up just feeling um tremendously loved, mm-hmm. they were going to have a different picture of God. And um and and even in terms of discipline, how I disciplined um, shaped how they would perceive God, yeah. um, at whether whether they perceived God as just, yeah, um, tempered with mercy, yep, and grace, or whether they or, or if I disciplined in anger, whether they would see God as just this angry God who's waiting to slap you around, yeah. Well, that actually that gets to one of the questions that was yeah. asked. Uh, one of the questions that came in was if if grace means unmerited favor, undeserved favor, yep. how do we discipline our kids with grace? Wouldn't grace mean not disciplining them even when they deserve it? Um, this is a g- great, great question, and I know uh, um, we just we just did a uh, a group uh, in the spring. Yeah, grace, yeah, grace-based parenting. Yeah, um, and and I didn't look at that material because uh, I'm kind of out of that stage. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I would say this: um, you can't. Um, grace has no substantive meaning without justice. Hmm. Mercy has no substantive meaning without justice. Hmm. So there has to be a clear sense of of justice that happens in the home as you parent before you can ever introduce grace. Grace, grace, Hmm. um, where justice is, grace shows itself to be all the more glorious. If there's not justice, grace is, does, it doesn't have any, um, substantive meaning to it. Yeah. And so, you can't just let your kids go willy-nilly and say, oh, I'm just being gracious. Um, it, justice says when we step out of line, there's accountability for our action. Um, mercy is that we're going to withhold the punishment that comes for stepping out of line. Yep. Um, grace is that, 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 um, that instead of that justice or mercy, there's going to be something extra in there for us that's marvelous. Yeah. Um, you can't live, you can't live on grace without a clear sense of justice. And so, um, you can be gracious, 
you can have a spirit of grace even when you exact justice. Yeah. E- even when you say, no, you um, here's here's the penalty for what you've done. You go and get a spanking or whatever. And I know lots of people culturally just go crazy about talking about spanking, but I, I think that uh, I, I've preached before, which is probably what created the grace-based parenting <laughs> class. I've, I've preached before that I think that there's a um, biblical um, precedent for for the importance of corporal punishment to teach to help um, kids growing up yeah. that there's consequence for the choices that they make. Yeah, well, I think in in the context like you were talking about of different phases of parenting, I think consequences look different right. in different phases of parenting. So to use the example of the 12, 13, 14-year-old kid that had two weeks of work on a project the night before, didn't do it, a consequence of that is you get to go to school tomorrow and you get to get an F. Right. That is your consequence. Natural consequence. We're not going to go to the teacher and advocate for you because there's nothing to advocate for. We're not going to allow you to stay home saying you're sick. Right. So you get an extra day before you turn it in. Nope. Because you're not sick. You get to go and be embarrassed. Yeah. Get your F and come home and keep working on it. Um, But that consequence might look different for a three-year-old. Absolutely. Um, Because, and this is, as I was thinking through this question, it's almost like there are are things that a two, three, four-year-old does that if they are allowed to continue in them, there really isn't a consequence for them necessarily unless a consequence is introduced. Right. So the consequence of a three-year-old lying to you, there really is no natural consequence other than you feel your relationship breaking and eventually if left un, un, yeah. uh, undealt with, if that justice isn't properly um, put into that place, delivered, that yeah. will... Uh, that will hurt your relationship. But really, if the three-year-old lies to you, what's the what's the natural consequence? But there is a big consequence to lying. Yeah. <laughs> There's a massive consequence to lying. Yeah. So again, like you were talking about earlier, your role as a parent in that young, young age is to show that lying is a big deal, even though you won't feel the natural consequence right. immediately after it, versus a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 15-year-old that can enter into dangerous situations, unwise situations, uh, fail homework, mispractice, do whatever, and can feel those natural consequences and can process what's happening. Right. But at that young age, that's where, yeah, you can have grace in that. I think a proper parenting, like you were talking about, is justice is a right and proper punishment. So not right. going above and beyond to overpunish right. what's happening. Yes. Is uh, yeah, huge that should have been on my list. Overpunishment yeah. for um, the list of things that embitter kids. Sure. When you overpunish sure. for... Um, for uh, something that when there's too much punishment for the crime. Yeah. 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 That's big. Um, If I can talk, uh, talk about that, man, I feel like I really could start on the book thing. The, um, the recognizing the difference between willful disobedience and childish irresponsibility is a big, big deal. If you've got a three-year-old at the table, four-year-old at the table and they knock over their glass of milk at the table, they're not being disobedient. They're just being a kid that are still trying to figure out where their arms and legs go. And, uh, you know, motor function. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's not something that you punish them for. However, if you say, Mark, move your glass and Mark goes, (laughs) "Um, that's not, 
childish irresponsibility, that's yeah. willful disobedience, and that needs to be dealt with at a completely different kind of level. Yeah. And um, and we, we just, we have to, as parents, what's so hard is we have to be in tune to what's going on with our kids to be able to pick up on those things. Yeah. And another another piece in there that, um, man, I uh, all you young parents, I'll, I'll just talk to you, Mark. Um, <laughs> I'm a young it's, um, it's It's just so critical, I think, to teach your child to obey the first time. Yeah. Because while God does give grace, um, we will be held accountable for the choices that we make. Yep. And it's not like we get a do-over. And so um, it's so important. I, I believe it's so important um, with your kids to when you give instructions the first time to expect and demand them to obey yeah. the first time. Um, and, a, and a great tool to, to use in that, that that we picked up somewhere along the way was, like we would say, I would say, Leah, pick up your toys. And and she would keep doing stuff, and I would say, Leah, look at me, pick up your toys, and say, "Okay, Dad." And and when when they would say, "Okay, Dad," or "Okay, Mom," yeah. that connected that it removed any question about whether this was childish irresponsibility yeah. or whether it was willful disobedience. Yeah. Clearly, they heard. Yeah. Clearly, they saw they're just making a choice to not do it, and that then demands a, a, a very clear reaction, a, a very cl- clear clear consequence for that choice that they're making yeah. if we want to teach them that it's important to obey the first time. Yeah. Um, and, and as a parent, you may be saying, it, uh, what difference does it make if they obey the first time or if they obey 10 minutes later? I'll tell you the difference that it makes in you. Yeah. Um, your blood pressure over those 10 minutes yeah. will just continue to escalate and you'll get more and more frustrated. One of the, one of the keys, I think, to a happy home with kids um, is first-time obedience just makes everything go lots, lots easier. It takes lots of consistency Yeah. because if you go to sleep on that for any time at all, your kids know, oh, I don't really have to obey the first time. Right. I don't. I only have to o- obey when dad gets crazy. Yep. Um, well, if we can kick it back to the first time, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And, and uh, again, maybe maybe the tips and tricks come from having six kids, <laughs> um, <laughs> because there are th- there are, frankly there are things that you can tolerate with one child or with two kids. Mm that can't exist yeah. with six kids. Yeah. Well, you bring up the question of, does it really matter if they don't obey the first time or the second time? And as, as we're talking about all this, you know, it's interesting that we both have experience in higher education because I think back to the college kids that I interact with, like my student workers that I had when I was in the university, and you can tell almost immediately when they're put into some environment of responsibility where they're on their own, you can just tell the kids that have been parented with, like you said, that yep. progressive form of responsibility where you're not going to have all the responsibility in the world when you're 12. But you can have some responsibility. Yeah. When you're 16, you can have a lot more responsibility. And by the time you're 18, you can have most of the responsibility when it comes to especially living at college and things like that. And you can just you can tell at a functional level the students that have been parented 
in that progressive form of responsibility and those that have been kicked in the deep end yeah. and are just thrashing around <laughs> trying to figure out how to survive. What, one, more, uh, one more quick story. Uh, this, I, again, now I just feel so, so old. <laughs> but, um, but I was raised with, with parents who had that clear sense of progressive responsibility. Yeah. I was a pretty responsible kid. And so, so the more responsible I was, the more freedom I had. So by sure. the time I went to college, um, I think I probably had a curfew through high school, through the, my last couple of years of high school, but it was always with, uh, you know, mom and dad would say, if you're, if you're at somebody's house and there's a compelling reason for you to stay past midnight, just call and tell us and, and we'll say, okay. And so, um, like it was not uncommon for me to call a little bit before 12 and say, Hey, we're playing, a, we're playing risk. We're, yeah. we're in the middle of a card game. It's going to be another half hour. Is that any big deal? And mom and dad say, no, go ahead, come, come back. Yeah. Um, I was being responsible in that. Well, so I went to a Christian college in the seventies that had relatively strict rules about what <laughs> yep. you could wear to class. You had to be in the dorm at 10 o'clock on weeknights at midnight on, um, at midnight on Friday and maybe one o'clock. No, I think it was midnight on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that. Okay. Um, so I went f- from, more freedom yeah. that had been earned <laughs> to going into a place with more stringent rules. And, and uh, you know, for me, it was like, this is stupid. <laughs> I, I've proved that I can, right. I, I don't need to prove that, but I, but I can do it. It's, it's not that, it wasn't sure. that big a deal to do. I just thought this is a foolish rule that's not really needed. But frankly, there were a whole lot of people that people. needed those rules. Need yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Uh, any other nuggets of wisdom for parenting oh. before, we, before we move on? Nah, that's enough for now. That's enough. We'll save the rest for the book. That's enough of a tease for the, yeah. the Rubel Parenting book. All right, we got a, a really good question. So you brought up a, a quote from a series that we did in November. You brought up the God's Design series. And the quote was, when God's your desire, you can trust his design. Yep. And that was, we hammered that every single week right. when it came to Lo- I that series. I love that phrase. Yeah, it's such a good phrase. We will attribute it to Jake Howard. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. <laughs> uh, so the question comes in, God's design is trustworthy even when he isn't our desire. So can you trust his design even when God is not your desire? I think that the answer to that is absolutely yes. Yeah. Because God's design is for all of his creation. Whether we believe that he's the designer right. or not. His way is always the best way. We may think that we know a better way, but yeah. that's like that's like something that we create thinking that it knows better than we who create it, mm. what's best for it. And so um, so I, I actually would say um, people who don't have a relationship with God, but either intentionally or unintentionally live by God's truths, by God's principles, they implement them, their lives are way, way better because yeah. God's truth stands on its own. God knows what's best for us. Yeah. So um, for somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus at all, doesn't necessarily believe in God eh, very much at all, but chooses to not... Um, chooses to... Uh, to, to let's just go back to early in the chapter to abstain from sexual sin. Sure, um, their life is going to be better. They're not going to carry the baggage 
that they would yeah. if they if they say eh, I'm gonna I can do whatever I want with whoever I want whenever I want. Yeah. Um. There that the consequences of that of living outside of God's design. There are consequences of that, just like we've been right. talking about that, and 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 you're going to carry with carry that with you. And so, when you live in God's design, um, there's going to be blessings that come as yeah. a result of that. Yeah, I can't remember. It, it, it's bothering me because I can't remember this guy's name. But there's a scholar who is not a Christian. He, um, I don't know if he says he's an atheist or if he's agnostic, but he openly says I'm not a Christian. But he openly advocates for Christian lifestyle. And will openly go into debates with atheists about advocating for the immense positive impact that Christianity has had on the world. Right. But he's not a Christian. And so I think there's there's certainly some level yeah. of trust that you can have. Like he recognizes within the Christian framework and the worldview that there's immense good that takes place here when compared to everything else. Right. And there's just something about that where I think he doesn't have that full level of trust in God's design because God isn't his desire. And right. so part of God's design, like if you look at, you know, even within the context of this passage in Colossians of marriage, of the love between a husband and a wife, that relationship is put in place to point us back to God. Right. And so he would he would say and affirm the value of that relationship. He just wouldn't connect the dot to uh, I don't really care if it points back to God or not because the 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 positive consequence is still there and that's what he cares about. And so that's where I think this this question does have a some sort of stopping point for someone that God is not their desire is you might you might be able to logic and reason your way to the point of seeing okay it looks like the Christian framework is the best framework out of all the other frameworks. But if you don't have God as your desire, then you're always going to fall short of some at some point right. of that framework because all of God's design is designed to point you back to God, that you would be in relationship with God, um, and that's going to be that key component that that's missing from someone's life. Yeah, a, re- a, a real practical example of that that we um, deal with culturally right now is um, the definition of family. So, mm. uh, um, can can a one parent family be healthy and whole? Can a Two parent same sex family with kids right. be healthy and whole, um, and 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 advocates for uh, for perspectives other than I have. We'll just say it sure. that way. <laughs> um, would say absolutely that, that that's uh, yeah you, you can be healthy and whole. Uh, my question would be, it's in, uh, well I don't even know that I'd say it as a question. Study after study has shown what's the best environment for a kid to go to grow up in. Yeah. It's, it is with a mom and a dad, a male role model and a female role model who are married to each other, love each other in a nuclear family that lasts for their life. That's, yeah. that's the best environment. That's yeah. God's design. Right. Um, so if you live in that design, it, even if you don't have a relationship with God, you benefit from living in that design. Yeah. That doesn't mean that, that God can't, um, uh, God says that He's the Father for the fatherless. So, so that doesn't mean that God can't work through right. through two same-sex parents or through uh, uh, through a single parent. Right. It doesn't say that at all. Um, God God says that He's going to jump in and fill gaps, hmm. but it, but um, His design is best. Yeah, love that. All right, last question. Yeah, and this is a this is a really easy one. <laughs> 
a softball. Why didn't Paul take on slavery? Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is a softball. <laughs> Easy question. Uh, um, the, uh, it's interesting because it, we, we were talking before we started the podcast to say, oh, I think Jake talked about this when he taught from Philemon. Um, and, and, I, and as I was processing in, the, in this letter to the Colossians and thinking through it, um, why didn't he? Because he had an opportunity to, but he says, slaves, obey your masters. Masters, treat your slaves with, with respect. Um, treat them fairly. And it's interesting when we get to the end of the chapter in a couple of weeks, um, uh, end of chapter four, we're going to realize again that Onesimus, a slave, yeah. is helping carry this letter to the church in Colossae. So, so there's a real... You know, when he says, slaves, obey your masters, there's Onesimus right. either reading it or listening to that um, uh, that instruction that's there. Um, I, would, I would say the reason that Paul didn't take it on is not because he was in favor of slavery, but because that wasn't what Paul was called to do. Paul's calling was to plant churches and help people grow in the relationship of Christ. His, If I go back to earlier in the message when I said, um, scripture doesn't teach, um, doesn't command, doesn't teach for the less powerful to overthrow the more powerful to mm-hmm. to to take that authority away from. Paul's Paul's goal was not to turn the Roman culture upside down and and um, and cause slavery to be abolished. That is what God called William Wilberforce to do, mm. and that is what God called a lot of abolitionists in the in the eighteen hundreds in the U.S. to do. That was their calling. That wasn't Paul's calling. And I think that there's a great lesson in there for us that um, you may have a calling um, that, that God really has you called to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. I may not have that calling. And that doesn't mean that you're better than me or that I'm better than you. It just right. means that Romans, you know, Romans says we're gifted in different ways to accomplish God's purpose, and that's the beauty of who God is. Uh, again, part of His design. <laughs> there, um, uh, so so that's a um, for for me. That's a pretty easy explanation. That's not what Paul's charge was, yeah. um, and and that's okay. Interestingly enough, God brought other people along that stopped that process. Although slavery's been with us, you know, right. really since. Easy, easy four or five thousand years. Yeah, um, uh, it was. It's a normal part of fallen man to yeah. want to take control of other people's lives. Yeah, well, and I think it's, it's important to, like we've been talking about with all of Colossians, it's important to ground what Paul talks about in the context of that letter that he's writing, right? In the, in the audience that he's writing to, and so you, we, we've talked earlier that you can kind of get a sense of the issues that the church was struggling with yep. by the issues that Paul addresses, and so it seems like there was something. Uh, some sort of false teaching that he's addressing, and there's uh, husbands relating to wives and wives relating to husbands and children to parents and parents to children, and something about slaves to masters and masters yeah. to slaves. Um, but Paul's also writing into a context of a church that would have had the context of the church um, of the Israelite teaching for thousands of right. years, which was don't enslave people, don't kidnap people, don't abuse people. <laughs> right. If you do these things, you get the death penalty. <laughs> Right. That's the context that Paul writes into. So we hear that, like you address this in your message, we hear the word slavery and we immediately think of American slavery. And that's not the context that they were in. Right. Things like that certainly took place, but that was normal slavery for us. 
in American history right. and history prior to that with William Wilberforce and all that. That's not the case here. Right. And so that's the context that Paul writes into. And so that's why that's why we can kind of word swap with employer and employee yeah. because it wasn't this kidnapping, killing, abusing, although, again, it's not to say that that never took place, but that what Paul's writing into a context where they would have said, oh, if you do that, you get the death penalty. Right. So... It really is. It really is a fascinating um, aspect of our imagination to think mm-hmm. what what was the dynamic of reading slaves obey your masters, um, you know, work work not not to please them, not you know, yeah. don't change the way that you work if they're watching you, but work as unto the Lord. Mm. To, to have that instruction be there, and Onesimus, who had run away from Philemon, <laughs> is there as a part of the process, yeah. and he's become a follower of Jesus, and Paul says, he's, he's become useful to me. Yeah. His, his value, that, it's, just, it's a really, really fascinating thing. And then when you read Philemon again, and, and Paul says to Philemon, man, um, accept him like a brother, because yeah. he is. Um, the 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 value that was given to those who were enslaved because of Jesus yep. is is just crazy. And um, uh, uh, if I if I can, um, by the end of the message, I was running out of time. Um, and and <laughs> and I, my one regret at the end was that I really didn't hit harder. Um, the the challenge that's there in verse four uh, in verse one of chapter four that. If we're the boss, mm. how important it is that we're looking out for the um, welfare of the people who work for us, that we're creating the right kind of environment, that we're giving yeah. them the right tools, that we're treating them fairly, that we're, which doesn't mean that you're, you're still going to hold them accountable. You still have to get yeah. work done. You still have to do all that stuff, but it just means that you're going to be a boss that, um, that understands that your role, that you've been placed in your role by God, and that you're going to be answerable to Him for for the choices that you make. Yeah, um, it's so 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 important. Yeah, heavy stuff. Yep. All right, that's all we have for questions. Is there anything you want to leave people um, with as we're entering into our last leg of Colossians? Yeah, I the the um, I will say in it's funny because I've I've preached taught talked about the whole wife submit to your husband thing mm. um, lots of times over the years. And I don't know that I've ever been as um, convicted that submission is all about your heart more than about your behavior as I was mm. in my prep for this week. Mm. That that the just as I studied, it was like, oh, this is not obedience. This is not yeah. Uh, just oh, I'm going to willfully comply with. Uh, I'm I'm going to choose. I'm going to do what my husband wants. Yeah, because that's what I'm supposed to do. It really does speak much more to the posture of your heart in yeah. saying, "Oh, I'm here to come alongside and help." Yeah, and 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 I can help facilitate that in all these different ways. Mm. And that's not that's not devaluing at all. I, yeah. I, I, I think that same kind of submission takes place. I hope that takes place within our staff that, you know, that there's a sense of, Oh, Rick or the elders have said, this is the way that we're going to do. How do I help that? How do I help that happen? Yeah. 
um, rather than running um, Lone Ranger yeah. and, and taking your own path or saying, oh, no, I know better. Um, that, that, to me, in, in the prep for this particular message was um, compelling, convicting. Yeah. And, um, and the whole concept of husbands not being harsh to their wives. Yeah. Um, the, um, I, I eat a lot with people. You know, we, we have people over for dinner. We take people out to dinner. You end up in people's homes for different things. And, and there, it just grieves me when you hear a husband and wife interact mm-hmm. and the tone of the husband is harsh. It's demeaning. It's irritated. It's, um, it, uh, it, it, you just hurt, you hurt, yeah. you hurt because that's not God's design for their relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and it causes pain in so many areas. Yeah. So, no, that's great. Yeah. And as you were talking, like especially about that point of submission, I don't think I ever connected those dots either about the difference between obedience and submission. And that brings me back to that question that the person asked about: Can you trust God's design without Him being your mm. desire? And that's that's how you that's how you differentiate between obedience and submission. Is you can obey God's design and right. have no submission toward Him. Yeah, and that's that's what we're called to do: is submit to God. Again, I can obey God as much as I want, but really, my my issue is not my actions. My my issue is that my actions are born out of my heart. That's really good. Which is submission to God. And so I can tr- I can trust God's design and see the value and the benefit of uh, one man, one woman marriage yeah. and household and church community and structure and all that. But if I don't submit to God as my Lord, then who cares about my actions? Because I'm just really, I mean, this goes back to the emotion of the, uh, what was the word that, the blackmail in the household. Oh, <laughs> the, the quote, about, quote, yeah, uh, about uh, your uh, s- submission as a wife really just becomes this kind of bl- uh, emotional blackmail yeah. <laughs> over the husband, and that's yeah. really what we're trying to do with God is okay. Well, I'll check the boxes, I'll do the right thing, but I don't really yeah. want you to be Lord, and that's that's the heart of the matter is: am I willing to submit in my relationship to God in my in the relationships that He's put around me? Um, that's a really tough question. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, the Old Testament was all about obedience. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament is all about submission. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. it's all about a willful choice to say we trust God no matter what. Yeah. Which is good. Yep. Good, good stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. Yep. Appreciate it. Thanks for submitting questions. These were great questions this week. I expect... The same level of questions next week. <laughs> Circus master. <laughs> yes. Bring them it on. Circus ringmaster, bring yeah. it on. Uh, good stuff. Well, thanks for tuning in. Again, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for submitting questions. Be sure to do all the good social media stuff. Like the video, share the video, um, comment, keep the conversation going. I love I love the conversation we had on, on last week's video. Yeah. We're going to have even more and better conversation this week. So thanks again for your time, and we'll see you next week. Bye.